Welcome to Full Scope, a weekly medical podcast designed to teach, inspire, and encourage listeners to question everything they know. I'm your host, Bill Brandenburg. Okay, as I've mentioned in the podcast before, I am a hospitalist. As one of my jobs, I take care of the sick people that are unable to return home after visiting the emergency department, and I I bring them up into the hospital, I take care of them, and then I either send them back home or to a nursing home or to a rehab facility or wherever they need to go after their acute illness has resolved. I would say that at least 10% of my hospital practice is directly related to medication side effects and problems with medications. However, this could be a higher percent. I think it's possible that as much as even 25% or a fourth of my practice could be related to medication side effects, depending on how you correlate things and, and decide for causation. But I would say at least one out of 10 people are the direct effects of drugs. What I see is a few main issues that tend to come up over and over again. The first issue is bleeding. A bunch of people are on blood thinners these days. We have folks on antiplatelets like aspirin and clopidogrel. We have other people on full anticoagulation with warfarin rat poisoning and novel oral anticoagulants like apixaban and rivaroxaban. And these people bleed, and they come in bleeding all the time, and I have to deal with the bleeding. Another very common scenario is confusion. A lot of drugs are mind-altering, and a lot of them can precipitate confusion, particularly in the elderly. I've had a good amount of patients where I just stop a drug or two, and they just get better, and then I send them home. Falls are another huge issue. I see a lot of people that are taking too many blood pressure medications and they work a lot of the time but then all of a sudden their blood pressure gets too low because they're dehydrated or whatnot and they fall. Another reason for falls is any of these medications that alter their ability to think. Um, If people aren't thinking well or they're getting dizzy, their blood pressure is getting low, they'll fall and when old people fall it's a bad deal. They sometimes break major bones, hit their heads. If they're on blood thinners, then you've got another problem. And so falls are a really important thing, and we need to be really careful about blood pressure medication in this population. Another big batch of patients are kidney and electrolyte problems. I see a ton of acute kidney injuries related to medications like diuretics and lisinopril and ACE inhibitors and ARBs. Usually people do okay on these medicines, but then all of a sudden they get like a GI bug and they're not drinking and they get a little dehydrated and then they come in with some pretty bad kidney injury. Along with the kidney stuff is the electrolyte stuff. Um, A lot of those drugs I just mentioned, the ACE inhibitors, ARBs, um, the diuretics, the loops, the thiazides, the potassium sparings, all of these things can cause wackiness in the electrolytes and if those things aren't monitored in the outpatient setting fairly diligently after starting them, things can get pretty far along and they can end up coming into the hospital. The final category is both accidental and intentional overdoses. Of course, I see a lot of intentional overdoses, people that are acutely suicidal and want to end their life or want to at least show people that they you know, are, have a cry for help and they take a bunch of pills. 
but I also see kind of accidental overdoses. Elderly people who just are on way too many medications, they can't remember, you know, if they took their medications already and they end up end up taking double doses for a few days. And it doesn't take too many days of double dosing medications like uh, like renal and electrolyte medications to really cause some serious problems. So I see a, a ton of those four issues in the hospital in my daily practice. Stop drugging grandma. Today we're going to talk about the beers list. We're going to talk about stouts, porters, lagers, ales. No, I'm just kidding. We're not going to talk about all those things. But what I will say is that I've also noticed that so many people are just drowning themselves in alcohol at home. And I'm seeing a lot of people come in just so deranged and so debilitated from alcohol use over the last several months. People, we've got to stop sitting at home and drinking so much. What we're actually going to talk about is the 2019 Beers Criteria. And it is a paper. It is entitled the American Geriatric Society 2019 Updated AGS Beers Criteria for Potentially Inappropriate Medication Used in Older Patients. This is a great paper. It's something that is meant for clinicians that are taking care of people over 65 years old, and it is something that everybody in that population should be familiar with. And of course, it's published by none other than the American Geriatric Society. The beers criteria was first started in 2011, and every three years it's updated. Its main purpose is to prevent or avoid adverse drug reactions in the elderly. And I should say that it's not just meant for clinicians, it's also meant for patients as well. And quite frankly, anyone who's familiar with this could potentially benefit. It is important to note that the Beers criteria is intended for patients that are not on full palliative care or hospice. When you put somebody on a uh, patient plan where their only goal is comfort and quality of life, some of these recommendations will go out the door. God bless hospice and palliative care, but this is uh, a lecture that we're not going to be kind of getting into that entire role. That's a whole nother deal, and we'll talk about that at some point, I'm sure. I'm going to briefly try and go over the methods for how the information on the beers criteria comes about. Basically, it all starts with a literature review. And this literature review was both uh, from PubMed and Cochrane Library databases. It was done between 2015 and 2017. In the end, they identified it, identified about 17,600 articles and then boiled that down after reviewing them to 377 articles, 67 systematic reviews, 29 controlled clinical trials, and 281 observational studies. Then they convened a panel, and the panel was made up of physicians, pharmacists, and nurses, and it was meant to be experts, people that treat these these patients in, in the clinical setting and in a variety of clinical settings. You know that I really don't believe in experts, 
but these are just meant to be people that are that are familiar and working in this industry. I was so happy to see that they included nurses in this study because what happens at least in the hospital is I sit at my computer and I order stuff and then the nurses actually go do it. They're the ones who execute healthcare and because of that they're the ones who see 20 minutes later what happens when somebody has a medication all these adverse events they live it first firsthand while we're kind of sitting a little bit more removed maybe we come by for 20 minutes here and there but they're the ones who see it and I was so happy to see them be a part of this conversation and just a word to hospitals stop squeezing your nurses and treating them like shit or you're gonna lose really big in the end okay back to the process it sounds like they kind of started with a general conversation, broke up into groups, uh, made tables. I think it was easier for them because they had kind of the 2015 criteria to uh, kind of start as a guiding point or base point. I realize that I'm oversimplifying this, but if I went through all of it, it would get pretty boring pretty fast. These experts then used what's called the Delphi method which is a process used to arrive at a group opinion where uh, you get together a group of experts and then poll them on, on what they think about something. It's named after the Oracle of Delphi, Delphi uh, which is uh, the name of the high priestess from the Temple of Apollo in Greek mythology. I thought that was a cool way to do it and just a cool method and a good way to come to a consensus. The Beers criteria results are really best described by summarizing the tables in the paper. Uh, one of the new things about the 2019 update is that they included a Table 1 which included the quality of evidence and strength of recommendations. It was pretty simple. They, they went high quality, moderate quality, and low quality. High had good R, at least one good RCT, hopefully more. Moderate had maybe less high quality RCTs and low quality um, use things like observational studies. So kind of a nice uh, way to kind of quantify things and then each of the recommendations then has one of those um, uh, strength of evidence next to them. Table 2 is really the meat of the Beers criteria. It talks about all the potentially harmful medications in the elderly and things that you might consider avoiding of note, there are so many other medications that can potentially cause problems in all comers, but this list was really meant to be specific to our elderly patients. Table 2 is meant to be relevant for all individuals in the elderly population. In contrast, Table 3 talks about medications to avoid due to drug-drug interactions or drug syndrome interactions. So that's a more targeted table that looks at certain people that are taking certain drugs and have certain conditions and what medications they should potentially avoid. Table 4 is basically a softer version of Table 2. They talk about drugs to use with caution. Table 5 focuses on clinically relevant drug-drug interactions in the elderly. Table 6 talks about drugs that should have their dosage reduced or be avoided entirely in elderly individuals with kidney problems. It's kind of like an extension of Table 3 in a way. And finally, Table 7 lists medications with strong anticholinergic properties. And these medications should be limited or usually avoided in the elderly. Remember some of the mnemonics for the anticholinergic toxidrome 
Things like blind as a bat, mad as a hatter, can't pop a squat, red as a beet, dry as a bone. These things are clearly going to be bad in your elderly patients. One, elderly folks are more likely to get confused anyway, so any drug that's going to make them, quote, mad as a hatter is going to be a bad deal. They often have trouble with vision anyway, and, and having any problems with vision is going to predispose you to fall. So the pupil dilation and the vision issues are going to be a big issue as well. You see a ton of urinary uh, obstruction and, and a ton of issues with constipation. So a medication that's going to exacerbate both of those problems is clearly going to be a bad deal. And then just drying your old people out is also uh, not good as well. You know, they have dry mouths, they're unhappy, and it, it just makes them feel bad. So I hope that maybe the uh, elderly folks might drive home both the anticholinergic toxidrome and the idea that those medications should be avoided in elderly people. I'm going to go over all the tables, and we're going to talk about some of the highlights of each of them, but I just want to talk about the elderly or the, the old person brain. Um, these people are sensitive. Um, it's, it's almost like uh, children in a way. They've got a sensitive brain. It's not because it's a new and developing brain, but it's just more likely to uh, be insulted by minor things. If an old person has a, a drink or two, that might have a profound effect on them, whereas back in their younger days, maybe they'd throw back a 24-pack without a problem. What I notice in my practice, in my life, in the world, is that the brain is something that needs exercise. Just like the body, if you exercise the brain, it's going to get stronger, you're going to get smarter, you're going to do better. What I've seen particularly with COVID-19 is, is older folks that are in the nursing home, they're just sitting in their rooms, they're in full isolation, they're by themselves, and they are more demented and have less uh, thinking power than ever before. And this is a huge problem. Basically, the, the first point is that if you do not use your brain and you do not think your brain is going to get weaker, you are going to get stupider. By that principle, any medication that we give to our elderly folks that impairs their ability to think is going to predispose them to cognitive dysfunction and eventually dementia. This includes things like opiates. If somebody's on long-term opiates their whole life and they're just being snowed a lot of the day and they're not thinking, they're going to get demented. Same thing with benzodiazepines. If someone's taking benzodiazepines every day and they're not able to think properly, that's going to predispose you to dementia. The same thing goes with anticholinergics in the elderly. We've got to be really careful about ha people using medications every day which limit their ability to think because it will make them stupider. They will get dumber, and this will be a big problem. Quite frankly, people, our population is already kind of stupid enough. We need to be strengthening our minds, not hurting it. And if medications are working against people's intelligence, those medications probably need to be stopped. Okay, back to the beers criteria. There is, of course, way too much in this paper to go over in a reasonable amount of time in the rest of this podcast, and I've already been talking a long time. So I'm just going to hit the highlights, but I strongly recommend that everyone take a look at this paper. It'll really help your practice, and um, I, I will say that I break these rules all the time. 
These are things that I break all the time, but they're great guidelines to have in the back of your mind because if you use these medications in the elderly, you will see problems. And even though, I, like I said, I still use them, I'm always thinking, you know, what could happen when I order them. And that's important. It's important that you know the risks of anything that you do to a given patient. I want to start by going over table 7 and that is the medications with strong anticholinergic properties. Some of these medicines I, I don't use that much, I don't see that much, I'm just gonna hit kind of the main ones. The first group is the antidepressants and in particular the tricyclic antidepressants have a lot of anticholinergic effects. Amitriptyline is probably the poster child. I love using amitriptyline in my depressed patients that are younger because it has a great side effect of making them sleep and works great for central pain. However, I tend to avoid it in the elderly because it can make them kooky. I had a great geriatrician lecturer one time tell me that if I ever see the question uh, on an exam where one of the answers is and this is regarding elderly, is discontinue the amitriptyline. That's the answer you want to pick. So amitriptyline, uh, clomipramine, as well as uh, nortriptyline, and then some other of the more classic SSRIs like paroxetine and uh, doxepin are on there as well. Um, the next group is antiemetics. Prochlorperazine and promethazine uh, have strong anticholinergic effects and you should use them with caution. Perhaps the biggest group and uh, one that I always think about with this is antihistamines, particularly the first generation antihistamines have a lot of effects. Diphenhydramine is the poster child of this group, but I also use a lot of hydroxazine as well to calm people down and that's one that you got to be careful with. Meclizine, another antihistamine for dizziness, is one that you have to be careful with. Old people are always dizzy, and you may want to reach for the meclizine, but you may want to think about could this cause more problems than it might help. The next group is anti-muscarinics, things like oxybutynin, which everybody seems to be on that has urinary problems. Honestly, I don't even think oxybutynin works. So when I see people coming in on that medicine, I ask people, do you like this? Does this help? And they say they don't know, and I just stop it. And that usually is a good option. Some of the anti-Parkinsonian agents like benztropine and trihexylphenidyl are also things to be cautious about for their anticholinergic effects. In general, I think that those medications are not as good as like carbidopa, levodopa anyway, and so probably shouldn't be the first thing you reach for. Antipsychotics are going to cause issues as well. Things like olanzapine, chlorpromazine. I will say that really quick in the elderly, you run out of things to use to calm them down uh, when they're acutely agitated. You're not supposed to use benzos, hydroxazine's on the list, and then you've got antipsychotics on the list as well. In reality, in my practice, I'm using a lot of olanzapine and a lot of Seroquel to calm down my acutely agitated elderly patients and get them to sleep a little bit. I know that a lot of people would disagree with that, but I think it's a danger to themselves at times, and I think it really does help. But long term, you've got to be really careful about that because it, it, it will affect their ability to think. And as we stated earlier, that leads to problems. Antispasmodics, um, things like atropine and belladonna and scopolamine are kind of like the poster childs of anticholinergics. So you're going to want to be really, really careful for, 
with that. And then finally, skeletal muscle relaxants like cyclobenzaprine and tizanidine are going to be things that you're going to want to think twice about too. I will tell you that every single medicine I just used, I, or sorry, I just named, I have used in the elderly at times, but we just want to be aware that they could cause problems, and we want to try to limit our use. And if someone is, let's say, a little kooky, and you see one, two, and definitely three of these medicines on the list, you're going to want to start to pull those things back, and you'll be amazed at how clear some people are after you do that. Moving back up to table two, I just want to highlight a couple of the, the major players, and honestly a lot of table two is that, or those anticholinergic drugs which we just kind of went over. One that I wasn't or hadn't thought about as much as nitrofurantoin. That's an antibiotic that uh, kills bacteria just mostly in the bladder, but it says it has potential for pulmonary toxicity, hepatotoxicity, and peripheral neuropathy, and to avoid long-term use. So maybe think about reaching for another antibiotic in your elderly folks with urinary tract infections. Another group of medications is the peripheral alpha-1 blockers. Those are medicines like doxazosin, prazosin, and terazosin. You're going to see a lot of those used for benign prostate hyperplasia, trying to loosen up that prostate so that people can pee easier. But these medicines are kind of notorious for orthostatic hypotension. And that's when somebody stands up, uh, their blood pressure drops, all of a sudden they don't get enough blood flow to their, vein, their brain and they can pass out. And so that can cause falls, that can be dangerous. And so those are things to think about. But in reality, I end up do, using and seeing a lot of those using the elderly just because peeing can be such a big issue, especially for older men. Table 2 also recommends that digoxin and amiodarone not be used as first-line drugs in atrial fibrillation in the elderly. We have better stuff like beta blockers that should be used first. I will say that amiodarone is kind of one of my pet peeves. Where I work in Kansas, it seems like all the cardiologists reach for it as their first-line agent. This is a medication that can cause pulmonary fibrosis. In fact, it does cause pulmonary fibrosis when used long-term in a lot of people. That's just an unacceptable side effect. And while this drug can be helpful in your refractory atrial fibrillation and can be helpful for arrhythmias in the ICU, I hate to see elderly people on it long-term. And I've seen so many patients that have their heart rate controlled and they're still on it and it's just a bad bad deal. Pretty much all your stuff like that's going to alter your, your mental capacity like your barbiturates, phenobarbital, your benzodiazepines, both long and short acting, and then a lot of your opiates are going to be on this list as well. But you're going to end up end up using them. Uh, in fact, a, a lot of the opiates aren't on here. I guess they uh, um, understand that, especially in the acute setting, those can be can be really useful. Metoclopramide, um, that blocks dopamine and can help as a prokinetic in the gut sometimes, but this makes a note that you want to avoid it for more than 12 weeks. Proton pump inhibitors are a huge problem. Again, people are overweight, they've got a lot of uh, GERD and reflux, they're eating terribly, and they all just want to be on omeprazole, pantoprazole, and they don't like it to be removed. I try to remove this medicine and people get very mad, but this is a medicine that uh, 
potentially can increase your risk of Clostridium difficile, which is a pretty severe infection. I, I have seen some controversy around that, but I, I'm pretty certain that it's true that it does reduce your ability to absorb certain nutrients, particularly things like calcium, magnesium, which can then result in, in bone weak bones and, of course, bone fractures. So that's a big problem, and we need to think about getting some of those off of, uh, or those PPIs off of people's lists if we can, even though it's really, really challenging. NSAIDs are on the list. They can cause gastric ulcers and then gastrointestinal bleeding. These are over-the-counter drugs in many instances, you know, things like aspirin and ibuprofen. And so you got to be careful about that because people can get those anyway. And then, of course, anyone with, with kidney issues is going to run into some bad problems. A lot of people like to avoid these NSAIDs in their elderly for those reasons, and I think that's a good call problem is they are great at treating pain and so when you can use them they're really nice to have but you've got to be careful with them. This podcast is getting fairly long so I'm going to go ahead and skip tables three and four and let's finish up and just talk about table five because this has a lot of really good stuff on there and people need to be really aware of this stuff because I think the drug-drug interactions are we or where people get into the most problems. The first one is regarding um, RAS, renin angiotensin system. So your ACE inhibitors, your ARBs, and then your potassium sparing diuretics like spironolactone, um, amelioride, and triamterene. When you mix these medications together, you're putting people at increased risk for hyperkalemia. And hyperkalemia can be a really dangerous medical emergency. So I'll often mix in somebody with good kidneys an ACE and a potassium sparing diuretic, but you want to be really uh, diligent and watch those uh, BMPs for a little while after doing that. I do not like to see people on combined ACEs and ARBs. That really just shouldn't happen. So please don't mix like lisinopril and losartan together. That's not a good idea. The next interaction is with opiates and benzodiazepines. When you mix these two medications together, you get a synergistic effect on breathing inhibition. These people are at the highest risk for stopping breathing in their sleep and dying. And so when you see someone come in on very high doses of opiates and benzodiazepines as well, they're at high risk for dying and that needs to be evaluated right away. People don't sometimes realize that gabapentins also fall into that category as well. When you mix gabapentins which opi with opioids or benzodiazepines, you're going to have the same synergistic effect. Remember, gabapentin works on the GABA receptor like alcohol, which so does the benzodiazepines. And so you get somebody that's on an opioid, a benzodiazepine, a gabapentin, they have a few drinks, even if none of the medications are high, you could easily see someone dying in their sleep. So be careful with that. Any of the anticholinergics, you got to be careful about mixing them with other anticholinergics because of the potential uh, central nervous system side effects. Um, the same goes with like the antidepressants, probably for the same reason, mostly the TCAs, but also SSRIs and SNRIs. The next thing to be careful about is mixing corticosteroids with NSAIDs. When you put them together, you get a synergistic relationship that increases the risk of gastrointestinal bleeding and peptic ulcers, so be careful about that. The next two are regarding lithium. Um, if you mix lithium with an ACE inhibitor or a loop diuretic, you can have an increased risk of lithium toxicity. 
Finally, let's talk about warfarin interactions. Warfarin can be just an absolute nightmare uh, to deal with, um, but basically if you mix it with amiodarone, if you mix it with ciprofloxacin, with any of the macrolides, with trimethoprim, sulfamethoxazole, or the NSAIDs, you're going to get an increased risk of bleeding. And like we said kind of very early on in the podcast, bleeding in the elderly is a big deal, and I see a lot of it. A lot of my practice is dedicated to that. Okay, so that is kind of a really quick and dirty overview of the beers criteria. More than anything, I just want people to be aware of it. It exists. It gives us important information, and we need to be using it. In my clinical practice, I'm breaking these rules all the time, but I'm aware of them. I'm aware of the potential consequences. Unfortunately, we don't have always good drugs to take the place of these drugs when we can't use them, so we end up being forced to pick something. Like I said, with the elderly patient in the hospital that's that's acting crazy and pulling out all their lines and swinging at nurses, they're going to get an antipsychotic usually because that that seems to work the best, but that in fact is on the beers list and we need to be careful with it. So that is the beers criteria. Why don't you guys all go out and uh, have a beer or something? Thank you so much for tuning in to the Full Scope Podcast. You can find a lecture summary, key points, and any references on our website, fullscope.org. Additionally, this is the official podcast of Wonder Medicine PLLC, a for-profit medical clinic located in Boise, Idaho. As Carly and I own the clinic and draw revenue from it, we thought we should uh, disclose it as a conflict of interest. Disclaimer alert! It's a trap! The Full Scope podcast was designed and created for educational purposes only. It is not intended to diagnose, treat, or provide clinical knowledge specific to the care of any actual patient or population of patients. If you are in need of medical advice or treatment, contact a physician. The views and opinions portrayed on Full Scope are Dr. Brandenburg's. They do not represent the views or opinions of Wander Medicine Clinic, any of the academic institutions mentioned on the Full Scope podcast or website, or any of the hospitals which Dr. Brandenburg has or currently works at.